Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's great for kids doing homework, great for reading, great for writing, anything that you need to focus on. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments and more at mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1207, with guest Justin Searles. Recorded Thursday, October 1st, 2015. Hey, 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 it's .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Justin Searles is here. We're going to be talking about modern test-driven development with him in just a minute. I'm very excited, and he's very excited. And uh, Richard, are you excited? I am excited. I mean, I'm certainly looking forward to the show, but my youngest, who's 20 now, uh, just left for, uh, she's a curler. We always talk about this whole Canadian thing. So her mother's a curler. She's a curler and she's got, uh, what, nine years experience now. For those who don't know what curling is, it's Canadian bowling on ice. There you go. <laughs> Created in Scotland because all they got is rocks and ice. And, you know, there we go. The, the most important thing you need to know about a curling rink, especially as a parent, is every curling rink has a bar. Has a bar, so right. Taking your child to practice really doesn't suck all that much. Right. But she's now in the women's league. And is off to a tournament where she is playing like the national champion from a few years ago. She's a little freaked out, like she's fangirling. If you're into curling, you know, names like Kelly Scott are a big deal. But I'm just super proud that's why, wow, that's this, she's on the track where if her team is good enough, she could be playing in the Olympics. Yeah. Very cool. Yes. And I can't wait for that show when you finally say, guess what? My daughter is going to the Olympics. Yes. That, that would that be, awesome. would be an, I would love to be able to say that. And it's a pretty heavy aspiration, but she has made it possible for herself. So very cool. Very much. And uh, let's see. Uh, I won't talk about my kids because we don't have that kind of time. But <laughs> just to say they're There'll all doing- There'll be another show, I promise. <laughs> There'll be another geek out show. I'll just do a children geek out. That'd be fun. There you go. Uh, let's let's roll that funky music for uh, Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? All right, I feel like it's time to explain because we have some new listeners. Yep. Better Know a Framework is a take on Stephen Colbert's old Better Know a District bit that he used to do on Comedy Central where he would walk up to senators and congressmen and ask them questions about their own district and most of the time they couldn't even answer them. So, but this is Better Know a Framework. I started by shining a light on small corners of the .NET framework and it just became a place where I could find crazy things on the internet or funny things for sale or, or good blog posts or whatever. Right. Yeah. So, I just, somebody um, suggested this and I can't remember who it was. But uh, it's at tinyurl.com slash smartpipe. So you know that I've been sort of echoing the sentiment of, oh, my God, I can't believe somebody made a device that did that. <laughs> or somebody, <laughs> somebody made an IoT device that measures that. Oh, no. Well, this is a sort of, um, it's adult swim. Say no more. That's an infomercial for a smartpipe. And I'm talking about the pipe that connects your toilet to the sewer. <laughs> yes, that's right. It analyzes your doo-doo 
and tell and learns all about you and puts that data in the cloud. Not only that, there's a social media aspect to it, so you can find out the iron level of your ex-wife, for example. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Ah, the Internet of Dumb Things. The Internet of Dumb. But, you know, it, <laughs> sooner or later that had to happen, you know, yep. but uh, there are just so many dumb things that people are connecting to the Internet. Uh, and this is just a sort of a goof on that. Well, and this is a, I mean, this is obviously a prank and it's hilarious, but you got to look at some of these new high tech Japanese toilets. Like they're measuring a lot of stuff yeah. out of the toilet. Yeah. Uh, for better or worse. Yeah. But that's the Japanese. They've got their own crazy. I'd just be, I'd be happy if my doctor was looking at that data, but not <laughs> my friends. Yeah. Not stuff you necessarily want to share. No, I don't want to call from my mom. No thanks. No thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. All right, Richard, who's talking to us? Hey, I grabbed a comment off of show 1103, and that's one we did with Paul Mooney just a while back when we right. were talking about test-driven development with .NET and Java side-by-side, -side, which was something I really liked about that show, was yeah. putting those two things together. And Rafa Balin said, uh, hey, Paul. He actually addressed Paul directly in the comments rather mm -hmm. than us, which I, I totally appreciate. Totally love it. And Paul responded, too. So, you know, kudos to Paul Mooney. Uh, interesting blog series is, you know, uh, Paul's done a whole series of blog posts about building testing across .NET and Java right, right. on the comparison of .NET and Java. Really like to see them side by side. The only point I disagree with is on the quote, abstract everything motto or abstract all the things I know, you know however, however you want to use the meme. When I was starting out with TDD, I fell into the same trap and the first big project we used in this way, we saw a negative impact. The biggest problem was the fact that you lose the ability to do a very important third step of TDD, which is removing duplication and refactoring. Ah. Kent Beck, in his book on TDD, by example, never mentions that a unit test should test a single class. The concept of a unit should mean that there are no shared states between the tests. Totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. Testing only the public contracts of your domain gives you the power to refactor safely without having to change or move all of your tests because you are working against a stub or a mock. It also prevents you from getting abstractions over abstractions and ending up with classes that do nothing useful, as Richard points out during the show. I'm starting a series of blog posts myself and refers his link. I'll include it in the show notes. And I'm very interested to see your views on the subject. Thanks so much to Colin Richard for the great show as always. But by the way, Raph, this is an awesome comment from the perspective of you speaking to the guest and thanking us. You get it, man, because right. the show's about the guest. About the guest. So I super appreciate the approach this way. And, and Paul, too, jumped right in here. Uh, they had a long conversation, which I absolutely recommend to your reading because they really went back and forth on thinking through the really nitty-gritty bits of making sustainable tests. You know, that's the hard part. It's not so much that I test the software the first time. It's does the test live through a major revision? Yeah. And uh, we certainly ran into situations where, you know, the a major update to a product like it in Strange Loop where we literally, all the tests were broken, let's start over. And that sucks. <laughs> so, uh, Raf, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the social medias. We post every show to Facebook and Google+. And you can comment there. If we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And that brings us to Justin. Justin Searles spends most of his time troubleshooting NPM, tweeting about flight delays, and uncovering human problems where others see technical issues. 
Interesting. He co-founded Test Double, a software agency of great people dedicated to making software that's better for businesses to manage, developers to work with, and customers to use. Welcome back, Justin. Hey, everyone. I'm glad to hear that the show is all about the guest. Yes, it is. <laughs> what else would it be about? We're just not that interesting. Excuse me for a minute, Justin. I got to talk to Richard some more. <laughs> well, I, I was going to pipe up earlier. The uh, Do you guys remember the cloud to butt Chrome extension? That pipe thing sounds more like the, the like a butt to cloud integration. Oh, <laughs> there. oh man. I love it. <laughs> Smart pipe. <laughs> Uh, it's brilliant. So, first of all, why are you debugging NPM? Um, I wouldn't say I'm debugging. Actually, I'm kind of like a, a scumbag open source complainer. I gave a talk uh, <laughs> last year. <laughs> I gave a talk called Social Coding Contract and about how hard it is to maintain open source because, I mean, as a maintainer, you're doing stuff for free often on your nights and weekends. And then the public just sort of, especially business people in the public, just expect free tech support forever, yep. right? Not just that consuming the open source is free, but also your time and triaging, responding to, and then patching stuff yeah. uh, is just sort of a, a lifetime warranty. And so normally I try to be um, a little bit more muted in my criticism of, of various technologies. Um, but when NPM kind of became an incorporation around the open source, uh, it made me feel a little bit less like I should be egalitarian in my criticism and, and devote my own free time to improving it. And just before you go on, NPM Node Package Manager? Yeah, right. NPM uh, is a tool that that purportedly does not stand for Node Package Manager, but that's completely what it is. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> like it so is the, yeah, right. It is the Node.js tool that, that uh, uh, everyone uses to publish and then consume little tiny modules of JavaScript everywhere. And I think that their business plan, at least from what I read the tea leaves of, is they want to be the registry of all web assets. So front-end assets, back-end assets, they want to be the the source of truth registry where we all suck down our dependencies for our wow. projects. I'm looking at the websites and it says noiseless party machine. That's another NPM. You know, they'll make zero dollars off of that, but they might make it up in volume. <laughs> <laughs> oh jeez oh man that nice. took a minute to <laughs> help me now my brain is sore because <laughs> 10 million times zero still, still zero. zero well and i think what you're saying here justin is just looking you know at going back to the npm side is they're kind of doing the githubby type thing where there's there's the open source free side and then they've got a commercial side i guess for enterprises the private repositories for a fee right yeah and and as a consumer of it you know i don't uh, I'm not paying them, so I'm not a customer, but I feel like uh, since they're paying other people to work on the open source and they've got, you know, a, a business model in front of it, it doesn't quite feel like the normal open source project where my first instinct is, let's pull down the code, dive in and try to improve it myself. Right. So I'm I'm often sort of feeling like a Monday morning quarterback uh, yeah. just complaining about big structural changes. And I think it's not really a, an NPM problem per se, is it's just, as you and I have talked uh, about before, the JavaScript world is so massive that no one person is going to move it. Mm. Uh, and I don't like a lot of the systemic aspects of of the Node.js and NPM ecosystem, but it's way beyond my control. I'm just I'm just screaming into the wind either way because uh, yeah. because uh, uh, it's 
it's the future of front end front end code static development for for a good long while and there's not a lot that we can do to 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 steer it. Well, if you think about it, I mean the whole web thing is very decentralized and so, you know, anytime somebody pops up wanting to be the center of anything, that you know, is usually met with <laughs> Yep. Yeah, I what's that joke that you know the uh, Linus Torvalds invented this like perfectly designed decentralized version system, and then the first thing we did was go and stick a centralized single point of failure called GitHub. Yeah, <laughs> put all our stuff in one place, and that's one of the reasons he didn't like it so much. Right. Well, and npm sort of headed. Uh, npm wants to be in that same role. It's not yet, I think, but isn't that interesting? Well, you know, there was that AWS outage uh, a couple Sundays ago, right? Where just apparently one little service in one region was enough to bring down the entirety of all these massive websites. Wow. Uh, And and the way I look at it is that people are constantly, because we're so obsessed with getting stuff out the door, constantly willing to trade convenience today for reliability and durability down the road. So having a centralized service, super duper easy to get started. It's always going to be easier than doing something in a decentralized way. I hear the Skype outage was basically the same thing. They took down Skype for almost a day because of a minor patch. Man. Well, mm. you know, interesting that we're falling on this side of we're expecting constant deliverables and uh, and people are sometimes taking chances they don't necessarily understand. So uh, that segues nicely into testing. Yeah. Yeah, the testing's a good idea in this scenario, isn't it? Well, you've been a you've been you've really sort of made a career out of pointing out people's failures with test driven <laughs> development haven't you <laughs> so much so carl that if you google right now tdd failure my i'm the first person to come up yeah that's nice you've uh, you figured out what people are doing wrong and how they can do it better but you really start your your talks and your blog posts with here's what you're doing wrong i i there's a really, list of what you're doing wrong yeah i really try to not uh, uh, frame things so negatively, um, uh, and then true. wind up, wind up with that. I mean, cause you have to define a problem before you can show people a solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a lot of times, uh, uh, the areas where I really see opportunity to help developers just kind of be happier and lead, you know, more productive lives. Uh, it's, it's in areas where people don't already see a problem. And so finding a gentle way to call their baby ugly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're still going to call it ugly, but we're going to try and do it nicely. It's like, yeah, hey, dude, right. guess what? Oh, no problem if you don't understand. But, you know, your baby's a little ugly there. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, All right. I'll right. see you later. Bye. That's why I mix in some like Louis C.K. clips and animated GIFs and, and memes <laughs> along the way to try to soften the blow. I love it. So what are these typical, is that where we want to start? What are the typical problems that we find in uh, wrapped up in TDD? Sure. Yeah. So um, I think that the, I was very fortunate to learn test driven development and a lot of agile stuff uh, on a team of, you know, very well connected agilistas, uh, (laughs) you know, who knew, who knew a lot of the, First of all, a lot of them knew people like, you know, Ron, Ron Jeffries and Chet Hendricks and Uncle Bob mm. uh, uh, personally, uh, but they'd also been around long enough uh, to have seen, you know, XP come together and, and, and seen the manifesto and seen the sort of like they could they could give me an etymological explanation of, oh, and here's 
how this test rule came about. Um, and here's where the phrase, you know, don't mock what you don't own came about and why and, and in what context. And so I feel like my education around testing just happened to have a lot of the why answers baked into it. And when I jumped ship from doing a lot of like, you know, enterprise Java projects to Ruby on Rails, where I'd seen a lot of my, you know, testing heroes like Jim Wyrick, you know, years earlier moved to, I'd always been envious. I'd be like, oh, they all test. This is going to be fabulous. And when I got there, I realized um, that they might, they might have a test all the freaking time mentality and write a lot of tests. But the underlying, you know, ideology, the underlying like foundational, why do we do what we do? You know, what types of tests are here? Wasn't there. It was just simply a, a, a Boolean flag. Is it tested? Yes or no. Mm. Yes is the good answer. No is the bad answer. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really been my jumping off point for, uh, trying to, to peel back, pop the Y stack, as my friend Patrick used to say. Yeah. Um, until, until we get to a point that we can really say like, why we're doing what we're doing. So I have this bad habit at this point of being hired to do, uh, private testing or TDD training events. Uh, and then they sort of become, you know, as, as we ask the why question enough, it's like, you know, we move on way beyond testing to much more fundamental questions of design process, how we're doing, what we're doing. Mm. Um, and, and kind of like, you know, more, more life coaching. <laughs> so, uh, uh, all that to say, uh, your question was, uh, what, what are some things that people get wrong with TDD? I think that the, um, the biggest problem that I've identified is that, uh, uh, TDD is a very, as it's traditionally taught to people, is a very easy concept to be taught, especially if you've ever written a single unit test of anything in your life, uh, because because it's a simple concept, right? You know, you you write a failing test before the code is there. It won't compile because the thing doesn't exist. Go mm -hmm. make the thing exist. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's going to stay red. So, you know, just keep changing the message, do it writing code that changes the message until you can make it pass. And then you write the next test. And then after you're done with that, like your uh, caller and the feedback earlier today was saying, then it's important that you stop and that you refactor. And uh, people who are pushing that, I think, tend to have some personalities in the past have tended to be kind of dogmatic uh, and pushy and preaching that this is a panacea that's going to fix all of our fundamental design and maintainability problems. Yeah. Um, but, but, uh, uh, and it, and it demos well, right? Like if you do code katas, like the bowling game kata or the tennis game kata, uh, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll see for your firsthand, like, Oh, look, like this helped me focus and break the problem down. And this helped me, um, uh, come up with, you know, a, a test suite that was so robust that I could rip out the internals of the implementation, put them back together again, some other way and, and be, be good. And then what happens is we try to apply that to our big, very complex systems uh, uh, without a whole lot more thought. And uh, reality just slaps us across the face and we become disillusioned. And that's why, like, you know, in 2015, when I talked to most developers, most don't practice test-driven development, even if they have a lot of experience with it. And most of it's because they have all of these experiences that they can cite where they became disillusioned with, with the overpromise uh, uh, that they first heard. Right. Scars. Yep. Old pain. That's, that's where I started from is trying to figure out why those things happen. Um, why, why, why did it not deliver? And what I find in a lot of cases is that that simplistic approach to TDD is something that I've, uh, these are, these are terms that I've sort of picked up and sort of applied on my own. I don't know that they're canonical, but I, what I call that classical TDD that you read from Kent Beck and Uncle Bob as, 
uh, Detroit School TDD because it came out of the Three C's project at Chrysler where uh, Ron Jeffries and Chet Hendricks and uh, Kent Beck and Ward Cunningham were all in this one project in Detroit. And that's where like a lot of the XP stuff came from, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's the sort of, you know, classic mode. And one of the th- characteristics, the hallmarks of Detroit School TDD is that, you know, how do you break the problem down small enough so that you can test it? And how do you uh, refactor into a well-designed system are both exercises that are entirely left up to the reader. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, when you hear Uncle Bob speak about people failing with TDD, most of his exhortations are to professionalism. Like you're simply like, if the process isn't working for you, then you're not processing hard enough. Uh, uh, and, yeah. and I find that when you try to impact change on people's behavior, those kinds of arguments just don't, they don't have a lot of effect. It's really, really difficult just to exhort people to, you know, be professional, quote unquote. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of, yeah, this education by guilt has limitations. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, so that's what I call Detroit school TDD. And I, I struggled with it for a lot of the time. The other aspect of it that's, I think, you know, um, problematic in big systems is it pushes you towards breaking down the problem on your own first. So like, well, like, like, let's say somebody wants you to write a big um, an HTTP controller function that calls all the way down to a database. And you're like, well, I could write a single test of that, but I know it would be a very, you know, it would do a lot and it'd be hard to do all that in just one test and then get to a green state that meant anything. Yeah. So I should start bottom up and I'm going to like, you know, let's just do a test of the model object that talks to the database and then a test of the layer above that and a test of the layer above that. Uh, and then we'll just hope and pray that when we get to that top level HTTP controller, that all the APIs that we predicted we would need with these little building blocks that we TDD'd in isolation down below, that all those APIs, just ha- the method signatures just happen to match the return values we need uh, and fit like a glove. Mm. Um, but of course, that rarely happens in my experience. Typically, there's a lot of um, mismatch and then rework as I have to dive back down and, and change my expectations. Uh, so those are all sorts of things that I've seen go wrong with with classical TDD. Um, and uh, uh, the, the, I guess the last big one is uh, what I call redundant code coverage. So everyone wants a lot of code coverage. And anytime we 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 talk about testing, especially at big organizations, they want to see that code coverage metric go up. And so when uh, like if we're testing uh, sewer controller for for our butt to cloud solution, smart pipe. Yeah, smart. <laughs> so we're testing sewer controller, uh, and it calls through to a real sewer smart pipe model. Um, that's good because then we're getting more coverage of the smart pipe model in in another way, right? But we also have tests of smart pipe model. The problem is if you've got a five layer, uh, seven layer nacho system, uh, if smart pipe needs to have some sort of change made to it, you can change it in that one test in that one place and then push that on up to uh, uh, the repository. But then you're going to see CI blow up with every single test that possibly relies on that smart pipe, every related object, uh, every test of layers above it, all the integrated tests. And you might find yourself spending uh, days or weeks just in test cleanup mode. Mm. Um, and uh, so, so finding a, an approach to testing that doesn't result in a ton of redundant coverage is just necessary to, and, and I think it kind of gets to what you were saying earlier, Richard, right? Where uh, what you want to see is being able to change the system without uh, uh, all of your tests just being useless, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that was kind of the point of building the tests in the first place, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, and 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 so uh, the tests, uh, uh, they can tell you how you wanted the system to work back when. <laughs> 
<laughs> but it, but if it changes in a fundamental way, especially at its core, then then you have to do what um, you might call like uh, uh, true versus false negative analysis, where like right. every single one of those tests that fails now, you have to ask yourself, is it failing because the code had a course of business change applied to it? Or is it failing because uh, it's indicating my system's broken? Naming changes. Yeah. Parameterless changes. Like the plumbing that is coding broke the tests. And rather than the real change that, you know, this is a whole new feature, this is a entirely different way to do it and so forth. All too often, it feels like the plumbing that is coding is what breaks the tests. Yeah, completely. Um, so, so in any case, that's a lot of stuff that, that I see, uh, uh, with people, people stumble over in, in, in what I call Detroit school TV. I don't know. Have you guys seen situations that kind of mirror the, the sort of experiences that I was, trying to describe absolutely certainly so what's the alternative uh i'm glad you asked so i had mm -hmm. to come up with another geographic term and, and how i'd heard it i think maybe from jason gorman or somebody else had coined it a uh, london school tdd right. um so it's uh it's an international uh uh evolution <laughs> so it must be i guess better it's got a nice <laughs> yes. accent Right. <laughs> you know, as we as we know, imports are always better. Just ask Volkswagen. Uh, <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I love my oh, job. There's a software gag in there. <laughs> Hashtag too soon. Uh, so. <laughs> so, yeah, London School refers to the uh, very tight knit extreme programming user group in London. Um, and I think it was popularized by two members there, uh, Steve Freeman and Nat Price. They wrote a book. Uh, I think was published in 08 or 2009 called Growing Object-Oriented Software Guided by Tests. And it proposed a, um, a totally different uh, 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 way of thinking about test-driven development that was less focused on um, that regression safety, like you're describing, Richard, of making sure that the whole system works. That's the purpose of the test. And instead, much more focused on how could we use tests to actually give us information about the design of our system, make sure that we're implementing itty bitty things along the way, um, uh, arriving at a good design that is, uh, 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 clear and clean and, and working outside in so that we're not creating any, any waste by having little building blocks that don't plug up together well. And, uh, I think that the hallmark that most people know about, about London school TDD, if they know anything, uh, is that the way that it facilitates that outside and test driven development isn't working in huge chunks, but rather you start at the outside with say, a uh, smart pipe controller and you start by asking the question, Hey, what, what, what objects do I wish I had here? If I had these two or three dependencies that could do the, the work for me, what would they be? What methods would they have? And let's replace actual ones because we're not going to implement them yet with, um, uh, test doubles or, or, or mock objects. Uh, and, and we'll, we'll only be testing here that the three things are talking to each other the way that we want them to be talking to each other. Right. Uh, we're not, we're not going to be actually asserting that everything works. We'll actually get to a green test. And I wish that like, you know, downside of podcasts is I can't be writing at a whiteboard and illustrating, but the way that I break it down is sort of like a tree. I start at the top. I identify a few things, uh, underneath that layer. I get that test passing showing that interaction of like, you know, pull up the data, transform the data, load the data somewhere else, or have some side effect or send an email or something. And uh, uh, once that test is green, that that interaction seems to work, uh, I forget about that layer. And then I have three sub problems that I can that I can sort of recursively tackle 
continuing to use the test to help me break the problem down into smaller problems so that the refactoring doesn't become some gigantic mess that's that's underneath a public API that it's just up to my professionalism to figure out how to apply design patterns to. So, and if I'm reading between the lines here properly, what you're really saying is, yeah, you broke all the tests, but we've organized those tests in a way now where you don't feel like it's overwhelming to fix all the tests. Yep. Yeah. So there's less redundant coverage because if you change something at this lower level, like yeah. uh, how, how you how you uh, round uh, Carl's wife's iron levels uh, uh, in the in the uh, smart pipe ex-wife. model, ex-wife. Excuse me. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Well, so if you if you change like a calculation at that lower level, it's not going to affect the higher order test because all they're they're probably just passing around, you know, uh, 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 dummy values just to prove that the interactions are working. Right. It'll, it'll break the integration test, which you want to have as a safety net. Uh, but you're not going to find yourself just cleaning up countless confusing yeah. unit tests forever. And this is that the again, getting back to the comment uh, from Raf earlier, just not you have to abstract enough to create some resiliency between the hierarchy of tests, but not so much that you can't refactor because you can't see anything anymore. Right? Yeah. So you don't want this to be a um, uh, uh, use this as an excuse to create a 20 layered system, because then your call stack is 20 things and you have to bounce between them like the goal should be use this as a way to break the problem down so you can get to what I call like leaf nodes in that tree that are just sure. pure functions, really easy to test, no mock objects, and maximize the number of just sort of easy to test functional things throughout your code. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's a, that's a little bit of the gist. I mean, frankly, when it comes time to change a lot of it, like for example, if a requirement change happens at a middle level there, you have this tree that you can look at and say, okay, well that subtree of functionality changed. Uh, how I broke it down was very coupled to the first implementation. And the way that I roll is actually will snip that tree because I have so many small units and just redrive out a new solution from scratch, yeah. possibly reusing the leaf nodes. And, and it's a healthy way then instead of having to wait until uh, uh, your tech debt rises up to the point that you want to do a big epic rewrite, small tactical rewrites are kind of just worked into your normal workflow. Well, this is a good place to pause because, Richard, you know what time it is. Uh, must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to announce my new TDD tool called Go Green, which magically makes all your unit tests run green by instantly replacing all test code with return true. Only $10,000. <laughs> it's just a big <laughs> magnet. Do you, do you guys have like a, uh, like a partner channel if I resell any of those in my capacity at Test Double? <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing is, somebody out there would probably buy it. Yep. <laughs> it's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you that Telerik DevCraft is the most complete .NET toolbox for web, mobile, and desktop development. With the addition of UI for Xamarin to the DevCraft bundle, you can create compelling native mobile experiences with your C-sharp skills. Download a free trial at tinyurl.com slash devcrafttrial. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Stuart Holywell. Congratulations, Stuart. Golf clap for you, Golf sir. Golf clap for Stuart. And Stuart just won a Telerik DevCraft collection. That's a big pile of awesome from Telerik, one of our sponsors here at .NET Rocks. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, Answer a few questions and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. 
And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And uh, we like to ask our guest as well, Justin, if you have $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Oh, man. Uh, so uh, discounting the smart pipe thing. Uh, I'm interested <laughs> in the iPad Pro. Uh, okay. if it were to be out now, just because, uh, I've always wanted an ability to like, just like whiteboard easily for all the talks that I do instead of my crappy walk home tablet. Okay. Um, I also, I, I bought a house a couple of years ago, but I haven't taken advantage of the fact that I can knock down the walls if I want to. Um, and so Replace I've been trying all the pipes with smart pipes. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was thinking of the smart, smart home stuff, like right. home kit accessories. I've, I bought a few Phillips hue bulbs. But then I realized that, you know, I'm in a slightly older house. And so I don't have, you know, uh, smart switches built into the uh, yeah. boxes there. Uh, so what's crazy to me is like, you know, I would love to have all of my bulbs in the whole house be smart bulbs. But then none of the solutions for turning those on and off <laughs> are actually at all intelligent. I think the smartest smart bulbs are just LED bulbs, don't you think? Well, in terms of power consumption. Seems that way. I mean, I, I would love the idea of... Having them, you know, turn on when I walk into the house, turn off when I walk out of the house, but yeah. then having something as simple as a light switch that doesn't just cut power to them entirely. I see. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Hmm. I want to buy, if I had $5,000, I would buy a person to solve that for me. Nice. Yeah. Or their time. Yeah. There we go. On my list of geek outs is a smart home show. I think it's actually at the top of the stack right now. And it's just so much different stuff. You know, one one of the thoughts I have in that particular space is, and I notice this with my audio system in the house. I put panels on the wall to control the audio system. We just don't use them anymore. We use a tablet. Yeah. How much longer before there's just nothing on the walls anymore? Mm. Right. Ooh. Why wouldn't you always have a computer in your pocket? Why wouldn't that be controlling your house? And more importantly, your house generally doing what you want. The only time you use the device is when you I need an exception. Walls are for art. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Richard, I think long term that makes sense, but short term, it takes me 15 seconds, right, for this all to load on my phone properly so that I can yep. click a thing to turn a light off and just having a tactile switch, you know, something that just works. Yeah, so if you want something that works, why are we putting computers all over it? That's, That's my question. Exactly <laughs> <right>. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I started doing is just using tablets as dedicated controllers. Just these little little guys, right? The little Android tablets. You can just, you know, oh. put one of those on the wall for a dedicated task. You don't have to go crazy with special panels that are dedicated, you know. So, so, do they, but do they work? Are they like sure. reliable? I mean, the yeah. For example, I have um, a, one of those Jawbone jam boxes in the bathroom that I love to listen to the radio with, uh, and the radio is just, you know, I just plug in my phone and pull up uh npr or something like that when i'm you know in the shower music or whatever but i always wanted to be and i haven't done this yet but i always wanted to just put a dedicated android uh panel you know tablet right there on the on the wall it's just a matter of having power right now really but yeah. just so that it's always there so you just press a button when you're about to get in the shower oh nice that kind of thing yeah cool gadgety gadgety Anyway, you can burn five grand doing that pretty easy. Sure. <laughs> you could also spend five grand on the healthcare when you electrocute yourself uh -huh. in the shower. I yeah. was just thinking if you want an iPad Pro, you know, 
there's always the surface too, right? This whole, you know, slate with a keyboard thing. It's been around for a while. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, yeah, that's, that's true. I have no <laughs> follow up. I think the, the Apple pencil looks pretty sweet. Uh, um, the, the eye the, pencil. It's the biggest the problem pencil. with trying to be artistic, and I don't have a lot of surface experience, but the tr- biggest problem with trying to even write notes with my finger or a stylus on an iPad is the latency. You know, it's uh, it doesn't feel like writing because there's like a little hundred millisecond lag behind you. And mm-hmm. supposedly the new iPad Pro has so increased the refresh rate of them seeking that pencil or your finger that it's uh, feels more like you're actually writing on a screen. Yeah, and it's a great goal, right, to actually get to that kind of feel. My daughter, the artist, has the pro with the stylus for actually, because it's pressure sensitive, so she can actually use it like a proper uh, painting tool. I use the uh, Surface Pro 2 in the studio to write music notation. Oh, nice. Yeah. I wonder how many reams of paper I could buy for the price of one iPad Pro. (laughs) Lots of paper. That's funny. That's not necessarily a good thing either. All right. We got to dive back into this thing because I I just think it's really interesting to think about. I don't know how many people even know this idea of the Detroit slash Chicago slash classic TDD versus the London TDD. Yeah. Do you see it as a schism or is it just a different way of thinking about the problem? Well, I um, uh, so I've got this wiki that you guys can link to uh, on the show notes that I've been kind of working on as I've been prepping some trainings this summer. For sure. Um, and uh, I, I went up and I did a little quick article on my understanding of Detroit School and London School TDD. And the dominant reaction, got a lot of reaction about it, was what's that? Uh, even mm. from people who are, who are you know, uh, that surprised me that I thought were pretty, you know, uh, uh, I guess, agile hip. Mm. Um, but, but so I think it was just a smaller, lesser discussed thing than I'd assumed. Uh, and that's fine, right? I mean, I'd, I'd said... I. I think it's a conversation worth having that I think is just sort of underdocumented. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sent off uh, my article on what I understood to be London School TDD to Nat Price, who was one of the authors of Goose, and I think that uh, uh, my 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 understanding from his feedback was he, he had a couple of factual corrections, but I think that I probably put a lot of words in his mouth to describe it as if it's a schism, as if it's a totally separate thing. He views it as you know there is just one TDD, and this is just a a way to solve a certain class of problems. Um, so you're very, very kind, a uh, very, you know, not provocative. Uh, so, so I have so far not figured out how to integrate his feedback into my extremely provocative and your stuff sucks. And here's this awesome way style, uh, <laughs> of speaking. Nice. Uh, uh, but, uh, no, I think that it's just like anything we, we love talk screaming from the rooftops. This is the best way. The other way sucks. And that's what gets on hacker news. We tend to not do a great job being like, Hey, look, there's 20 layers of nuance here. Let's all sit around and talk about all this, this nuance and these trade-offs. And then, and the funny part is that's always the truth. It's always more complicated than you think. If it was easy, we'd all be doing it that way. Exactly. It's just not that simple. So is that actually on GitHub? The testable repository is. Yeah. The, yeah. Your- yeah. It's a testable repository called contributing tests. Uh, just a little simple wiki that I've been putting together because this fall, my goal is I'm doing a, a like a 17 day, six segment flight conference thing of four different <laughs> conferences. Uh, and the goal of that talk is to try to exhort people that after like six or seven years of doing coaching and consulting about TDD, probably the biggest thing that I've seen, the biggest predictor of success isn't that you have great tests or bad tests. It's, 
are your tests consistent? Right. Uh, if they're consistently mediocre, then you can improve them all at once pretty easily. Yes. The problem is all this accidental creativity that is applied by either carelessness or maybe even too much excitement, too much exuberance. Um, and so, uh, the talk is going to try to show like here, like, like what if you had a contributor's guideline in your repo, just like you might for how, how you do your curly braces and your other style stuff for these are the two types of tests that we write in this thing. Here is an example. We do not deviate from calling the thing under test subject and so on and so forth, um, without getting too long, but just like to say, this is how we expect tests to look. And I think when you talk about the long-term maintenance of the system, if you only have two, three, four very clearly defined, narrowly defined types of tests, then your, your, your project health will just go way up is my theory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, you know, also often we see this whole conversation about any testing is better than no testing, which is absolutely true and not enough conversation about let's actually make good tests. Yeah. Right. And, and how much is too much testing? I've been in the room before hired as a consultant, almost as if people are just paying for someone to give them permission to delete bad tests. Right. Uh, if, if all tests are good tests and all, all things that make my coverage stat go higher are good, then why is it that I've got this nine hour build? And why is it that we spend, you know, two thirds of every release cycle just fixing broken tests from new changes and so forth? Right. Brittle testing. Right. Can you talk about the relationship between redundancy and regression value? Oh, yeah, that's that's a good one. So, I mean, one of the biggest criticisms of uh, London School TDD of using test doubles at all. Uh, by the way, if you use if you see mocks or if you hate mocks, I think that the 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 way that I use test doubles is very, very, very diligent and careful and targeted and only in specific types of tests. Mm -hmm. I think how most people use them is because. They're convenient for uh, getting yourself out of hard, hard to test boxes that people just apply them tactically where, where they should be applying, you know, design improvements. Uh, so it's no shock at all that a lot of people just have a negative feeling towards mock objects to begin with. But to answer your question, when they see a lot of tests with a lot of mock objects in them, they're like, well, what the, what's the value of this? What's the point? Um, because there's not regression value there beyond just simply making sure that the, uh, uh, Things talk to each other the way you expect. Right. Um, so, so yeah, less redundant, sure, but the regression values also decrease because you might have regression testing of the, the, the individual pure function units, the leaf nodes in that tree. Um, but you don't necessarily have a test that when it's all plugged together, it all works. Uh, so, so typically I'll, I'll need some kind of safety net, you know, some kind of smoke test just to tell me that when it's all plugged together, it does all actually work. And most of those branches have like logical ifs and else's happen way deep in the layer and those are well tested. Um, so, so usually it just feels kind of like magic. It feels like you're, you're putting a lot of trust into the system. Um, but I think it's just our impulse that says everything must be maximally realistic or I can't trust it. Uh, that, that, fools us into thinking that every test has to call through to absolutely everything. You you sort of mentioned your love-hate relationship with mocks. What is what is can you go a little deeper into that? Yeah, so um I frankly like I didn't understand for a long time when I would visit a a, a Ruby on Rails team in the late aughts and and I'd hear everyone say, you know, the 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 team would be split. Their half the team would be like we love using mock objects. We love using like, uh, what was it? Mocha or, uh, 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 flex mock. Right. And 
or, or our spec mocks, you know, it's really convenient, super easy. And then the other half of the team who was probably tasked with maintaining those tests in a lot of cases would say, you know, no, it's confusing. Like when you, when you use a lot of mock objects, I can't tell at a glance what's real and what's fake. Uh, I don't know what's actually being tested and what's being faked out. And I don't know if it represents a realistic, uh, you know, exercise of the thing that's being tested uh, or if it's this fantasy land and, and a green test there doesn't actually tell me anything's working. Uh, so so they'd complain of, you know, like over mocking is a common term that I'd hear. And I just didn't really understand that because I, I was brought up, I guess, in Java using a tool called Mokito where we used it very explicitly. Like it was like there are tests where you're testing collaboration and there's tests where you're testing logic and nary the two shall meet. Uh, but where you see it in practice is, man, like people will uh, just just combine all of that into these really, really complicated setups such that you can't really trust that the test is doing anything, right. even once you figure out what the thing being tested is. There is a real case for mocks in the, in the situation where like you need to put an order through to PayPal or you need to, you know, make some communication happen that, uh, you know, that kind of thing. I can see a real use mm. for mock objects, right? Yeah, and so what I what I typically notice, like, so if we separate our unit tests from tests that are more integrated, uh, at the unit test level, what I try to do, and this is sort of a pattern that was picked up from Goose as well, is um, rather than mocking the stuff that you don't own, like I don't own whatever code I'm calling to to invoke PayPal, uh, wrap that. So you wrap that in your own custom object that looks and quacks and feels just like all your other custom domain objects and simply delegate to PayPal. So then you mock that thing out in all of your unit tests. And so your unit tests are not really even touching the peripheries of your application, the HTTP, the the other third-party APIs, the database. And when you get to the integration testing point, that's where faking that out and really exercising it, like how the code behaves when you get different types of responses from PayPal, where that would happen. And usually... Mock out, mocking libraries are, are better suited for unit testing than for testing those sorts of situations. Yeah. Uh, so then you see, you know, uh, tools like VCR that are, that are more useful for faking those kinds of interactions. I mean, I've always looked at mocks and stubbing as an approach to parallelizing development. You know, we hmm. work on a lot of multi-tier applications and I got a lot of people with a lot of stuff to build. And the quicker we could sort of define those layers and define the calling methodology, the quicker Clients can be worked on, middle tiers can be worked on, back end can be worked on without being dependent right. on anybody else. Ah, uh, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, Before you even fill in the what the code does, write the framework for the code, right? The yeah. way it looks, the shape of it. Well, and mm. this is about getting teams moving, right? That are, your your architect and your leads are going down and starting to work out the the overall uh, object architecture. So that we can have calling layers that are reliable and you mock those. And then, you know, the guy below it can work on it. And the guy above uh, can work on his stuff and not depend on anybody else. I think uh, uh, nowadays with everyone moving towards such incredibly smaller repositories, smaller services, smaller modules and, and a common protocol of HTTP and JSON, where you might have seen a lot of the nth layer stuff in the past call for that sort of strategy, uh, you're instead seeing, you know, smaller tactical teams of just one, two, three people, each right. owning a service and having a clearly defined protocol instead. Which is basically, it's almost the same thing, right? It's yeah, just that yeah. you carved it off into a small enough group of people that they can, they can have dinner and still work. Exactly. Right? Like, it's a ma- the magic number of we can all hear each other. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's a, it, it, seems, it feels like exactly the same thing. It's just we're moving the, 
um, communication responsibility from objects inside of a single process to spending tens of thousands of dollars on AWS consultants for DevOps. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now the protocol is HTTPS. That's right. really all that's really happened. Right, exactly. Right? So we've, we've made it slower and negotiate a security boundary and possibly yes. a transactional boundary too, but fine. We've reinvented Erlang in the least efficient way possible. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. This is like stand-up comedy hour on .NET Rocks. Oh, my I love goodness. it. He did say he was just going to sort of throw poop from the sidelines here, didn't he? <laughs> I, I may be paraphrasing just a little. I I I am just here to force people to ask hard questions. <laughs> there you go. Is that what that was? Because it splattered all over me. Okay, that brought the conversation <laughs> to a grinding halt. <laughs> just dialing it in, dialing it in. Um, these these failures that you have seen that we started off the show talking about, um. They're still happening to a lesser degree now. Are people getting more hip to the to the real world uh, agileness of TDD, or are, are you still seeing this kind of these problems? Yeah, you know, I think it's uh, it's interesting because TDD is in this sort of like in the, the adoption life cycle of things. It's in the mature stage. You know, it's not yeah. like. Your, your enterprise architects, they know about TDD. They may, may have practiced TDD. You might have like, like I'm in Columbus. We've got big banks and insurance companies here and they're trying to, if not mandate, then really encourage top down TDD. Um, so it's, it's definitely a ubiquitous concept. But what I find is that, uh, most of my friends, most of my uh, colleagues are just a little burnt out on, on the, 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 seeming religiosity that it is there for always good. It's the, it's, it's what you should always be using. And, and I know some of the, like, so Testable is an agency, right? We, we sell consulting services to all kinds of businesses who want to build custom stuff. And a lot of my competitors out there will pitch TDD as the solution to all problems uh, of how to do code. And for us, it's just, you know, it's a tool in the toolbox. And if, if, if your goal is a long-term maintainable solution around like, you know, a well-defined problem, uh, then it's a great way to ensure that you're going to build stuff in a in a stable way. But if you are, you know, trying to get stuff out the door, your budget's really tight, or it's a it's not a really you know well defined problem space, and you're probably going to have to throw this all away in six months, then the long term maintainability doesn't matter as much. Not that important, yeah. So when when you ask the question, Carl, I was just thinking people are a little bit more maybe pragmatic now about when and where to apply it, and I think that actually makes it harder for people who are just now coming and trying to learn it. Because when you're learning something, you can never know, is this hard right now because it's not a good fit? Or is it hard right now because I don't know it yet? You know, something that you said, and I agree, something that you said just a few minutes ago struck a nerve with me, which was that today's modern software development is done by smaller teams. Whereas, you know, when TDD was coming into its own, it was all about outsourcing and large teams and big teams and big projects and all of that. And maybe TDD was a lot more useful when you have all these, you know, lots and lots of developers working on a lot of things all at once, and especially junior developers, right? Mm. But um, maybe uh, do you, do you find that that's what's happening? Has the the shrinking of teams contributed at all to the way th- ideas about TDD are changing? 
I think that's probably, I hadn't thought about that before, but I think that's probably part of that. I mean, everyone looks at, at, at this particular practice and sees a different, most important, uh, value they get out. Like if you ask a, that, that, that business manager at a big bank, his goal is no production defects, right? But when you ask, um, an enterprise architect, he might think, you know, design, yeah. Uh, for me, it's ensuring that I'm building small things up front. It's it's like my like the London School approach that I've developed for myself uh, helps me ensure I'm going to have a lot of small things, even if the problem is 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 not amazingly complex. Uh, right. But when you're building a really small thing, if I'm writing a thirty line, fifty line uh, little web service. Uh, uh, that trade-off might not be worth the time of going through the exercise. Yeah, if I can just sling something out, put it up, and then have it just be a single function that's self-deployed and done, uh, then then TDD doesn't add a whole lot because it doesn't solve my problem of boy, it's really hard for me to break down problems aggressively. Right. If they've already been broken down because of the you know human side of how we're organizing all these modules. Yeah. Justin, where are you going to be coming up? Speaking anywhere we know. Ooh, um, yeah, let's see. I don't know. Uh, well, I'm going to be at a rebooted version of the uh, SCNA conference, the Software Craftsmanship North America conference oh, cool. on November 6th in LA being held at USC. Uh, I'm going to be at Midwest.io in Kansas City, Missouri on November 9th. Nice. I only know all this because I just booked all my flights yesterday. <laughs> um, November uh, 13th, I am at Nation JS, which is a new conference by the people who put on the Ruby Nation pro- uh, 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 conference in Washington, D.C., I think in like Silver Spring, Maryland. Cool. Uh, and then November uh, 15th to 17th, I'll be speaking at RubyConf, the national Ruby conference in San Antonio, Texas. Nice. Awesome. Well, Justin, thanks a lot. It's been educational and entertaining as always well it's always my pleasure i love talking to you guys except this time because we're doing this remotely we don't get to go out for steak after ah yeah i know well soon enough (laughs) byo steak all right i'll have my smart pipe analyzer results and get those to you guys tomorrow (laughs) you need more fiber (laughs) all right we'll see you next time on dotnet rocks .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.